This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and Andrew Sean Greer won the Pulitzer Prize. And yes, I did just mispronounce Pulitzer. In 2018, for his novel Less, which is one of the great comedic novels in the last 10 years, let's call it. And he's back with a sequel called Less is Lost. And I'm so happy to see you. Thank you for making the time. Oh, thank you for having me on here. But I have a question for you. And, and I know this has sort of become a little bit of canon, but Less originally was supposed to be a tragedy. And I'm, I can see the mechanics of it, but I just want to start with how in the world did you think this was going to be a tragedy? I mean, it's true of every book I write that I, I plan out the book usually mm-hmm. while I'm, I'm waiting for the new book to come out. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. It's going to be great. This one's going to go so smoothly. And then I have a nervous breakdown. And I'm like, this book is turning into something else completely. I don't know if I can handle it. I call up my agent. I say, I'm, I'm not going to do it. And, she's, and she says, Andrew, it's going to be fine. And then I change the book. It's not that strange for my okay. friends and loved ones that I did that here. But it definitely was going to be a book, it was supposed to be sort of a take on Colette's novel, Cherie, where there's an older courtesan with a young lover and, and he gets married. And, but then they discover that they're, they're really in love. It's pretty shocking. And I thought, oh, well, that would be a good, I love that book. I'll do that with like um, a gay man in his, in his 50s and a young lover. He, they don't care about each other. That's just sort of passing the time. So I wrote that book. And it was so boring. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is this your pandemic novel? Yes, it is. I mean, I started it before the pandemic mm-hmm. and I did all my research, obviously, before the pandemic. But then I sat and uh, I I was actually in Italy while I wrote the book, <laughs> which is actually a good place to have like a sort of um, vantage point on your own country because you see it more as an alien and things are a little funnier because you see how peculiar they are because you're you're realizing you're not getting it right where you are. Like you, you, you ever been to a foreign country and like you couldn't figure out how to flush the toilet or something like that happens to me all the time in Italy. <laughs> and, uh, and it happens in the U S if you go parts you're not used to. So I tried to treat it that way. And it works. Okay. But let's go back to Arthur for a second. Cause I think you missed yeah. this guy as much as we did as much as readers did. Well, that was it. I mean, I was saying that I made it a tragedy because mm-hmm. there is there's less of a, a serious part of it, which is that he's a, a gay man about to turn 50 and he has never seen a gay man over right. 50 because there was a whole generation, not mm-hmm. everyone, but a lot of them lost or in the closet. So he doesn't know how to get old. And that's like an incredibly tragic premise. Um, but I, I touch on that briefly and less, and it's sort of the occasion for his his self pity, which we sort of make fun of, mm-hmm. but then also engage in, and then his discovery of sort of how to go on. And I was for this book again, the same thing happened. I was writing a different book, different mm-hmm. characters on a road trip, and it was a disaster. It wasn't mm-hmm. working. The characters were not fully fleshed, and I just thought, if only I had. Um, a, a lovable, goofy character already made and maybe like a <laughs> famous author I could put in the car with him, then I could keep the pug <laughs> mm-hmm. and and start over. And I realized that it, I was I was reinventing the wheel for myself, that I really had a way of talking that I liked, especially if I was going to talk about my own country. Mm-hmm. I wanted um, that same sense of, of being able to uh, 
of empathy and ridicule mm-hmm. together that it would it would it would maybe get me somewhere. So so I, I went back. And Freddie yeah. is part of it. I was very happy to see that Freddie was back. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he's a huge part of it. <laughs> I thought it has to be his book. Okay, so you know it has to be Freddie's book. And we also know that Robert, you know, unless Robert's Robert's getting up there, Robert Brown Burns. And sure enough, Robert dies, which Robert had a very nice life. Marion's fully yeah. prepared to deal with Robert's legacy. And it turns out Les owes Robert a little bit of back rent. Yeah, well, it was one of those like too shy to bring it up, I think, over mm-hmm. 15 years after he was living in the house Robert had bought, um, like too awkward, not quite adult enough to to put together. And then the estate is asking for the money that Robert never asked for. At market rates in San At Francisco. At market rates in San Francisco. Because that's, it's funny to me to think someone buying something in the 1980s, it would have been nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In a very nice location in San Francisco, too. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's a glamorous location, but it wasn't then. Yeah. This time, Les isn't quite fleeing heartbreak. He takes a gig, which many writers have done, and he agrees to interview again a writer that we met in Les. HHH is back. <laughs> I don't know why I picked that character out of everybody. I need to I know. Well, it was because I already had a kind of Don Quixote setup in mind. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, wouldn't it be funny if if Arthur was the sort of Sancho Panza to this? And I was like, I'll just barely touch on it and see where it goes. And I thought he needs someone totally full of himself to to mm-hmm. shake him up. And I think I think unless he gets a lot of advice from people who are incredibly bossy. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And so I thought I'll make a I'll, I'll I'll make a new character out of one we barely saw last right. time. I think it's just like a shadow, um, and I'll flesh him out. And and also because I think when you're writing something and you have a character that just is fun to be with, and you keep wanting to put them in scenes, then mm-hmm. you should put them in scenes, and they'll take over, and you should let them take over and pair back anyone who wasn't working. And so. Mandarin was just such good fun to be with because he just won't have it with Arthur. He thinks he's a nobody and um, can hardly believe the choices he's making. And But he changes his mind. Lots of people meet Arthur and change their mind, though. That's half the fun of this book. But, okay, <laughs> so we've got HHHH. They're on the road. The gents are on the road with the pug because everyone needs a dog when they're traveling. They do, but- yeah. You, I'm going to presume, were not traveling with a dog when you were doing the research for this book. No, was it just I, you I, on the I road? Wasn't. It was just me on the road. I okay. rented a. Uh, I rent in 2016. There was a mm-hmm. presidential election. You recall? I and do. <laughs> I uh, was uh, surprised, as many, by the result. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I think I don't understand the whole country. I think I'm in a bubble of some kind. So I usually, for most books, whatever I'm afraid of is what I'm. Uh, what I head towards. Mm-hmm. Usually it's in myself. And so I rented a van and spent three weeks in the Southwest mm-hmm. and three weeks in the South, mm-hmm. the deep South. Yeah, my yeah. family's from North Carolina, South Carolina, mm-hmm. more Mississippi. These were places I've never been. And I thought I got to figure out. I wasn't going to talk politics with people, but my rules were like, I had to 
go to small towns. I had to sit at the counter in the diner and at the bar mm-hmm. in a bar. And I had to talk to people and just um, hear the story of their lives or something. Mm-hmm. And it was um, fascinating. No dog. No dog with me. But uh, that would have that would have helped maybe <laughs> get over barriers. But what was the biggest surprise from that trip, though? I mean, that's a lot of strangers to talk to in a lot of small towns. I mean, six weeks on the road. The biggest surprise was that um, I, I like Arthur, I tried to sort of butch myself up in a Walmart. Um, and I got like those wraparound glasses that straight guys wear and the baseball cap. And I put American flags on my on my van. I did. Mm-hmm. And like, I didn't fool a soul. I wasn't expecting that, that everyone, everyone knew I was gay and that there actually, I would meet gay people who would like run a coffee shop or something. Mm-hmm. And like, they knew what was going on, but it was clear that there was, it was of course a different way of living than San Francisco or New York city or LA or something. You're on the road, you're in this van, you're talking to your fellow Americans, my fellow Americans, our fellow Americans. And listening to what they're saying, and I don't want to say less is loss or less is autofiction because it's not, but there are yeah, bits of your that life way. that show up in these books. And obviously you're the writer, you can take whatever you want, but when did you know you had less? When did you know Arthur Less was sort of fully formed and you were in a place where this voice was going to go out into the world and you were like, yeah, this is it. This is it. Enough to come back to him. I know it, what it was, was that I wrote, I wrote a bunch of things that I cut and then I wrote the, the Italian chapter and I was in Italy mm-hmm. and I had okay. just been to a prize ceremony <laughs> and I, I wrote down kind of exactly what happened uh-huh. and okay. I, I changed a lot, you know, and I added Robert to it and I made mm-hmm. it part of a novel, but um, I thought, well, this is such good fun that I can't, um, this is it. And also, also Arthur Lessons had already become not me. You know, he had, I don't see him as me, even though, so that makes it easy for me to give him my stories because I feel like they'll transform in the writing into something else because he's much more innocent um, in good and bad ways than I am. Like he's guileless and, and bumbling Mr. McGooey, um, but he's also not paying attention to subtleties of... Um, the world around him. And, and I think that can cause pain. Doesn't that pain and doesn't that discomfort just heighten the comedy? I mean, writing comedic novels seems very, very easy, I think, to lots of people. And writing comedy in general seems, it's like you just tell a bunch of jokes and things happen. But the setup has to give you an emotional payoff. It's not just enough to be like, oh, right, haha. You know, Arthur is complicated and the people around him are a little complicated and everyone's sort of poking at each other well i you know i actually less was my first comic novel so I'm, I'm not a great expert on it but i and i certainly wouldn't be the first person to say that that comedy is when you decide you're gonna laugh you know that it's when you decide you turn it inside out and you make it into a funny story because it's actually so painful that if you tell it like it really happened um everyone would kind of be like, God, this guy needs a therapist. You know, you have to sort of process it in the funny way to relieve yourself from it. And maybe, hopefully, there's a reader or a listener who can relate to something in it and it relieves them of that. And I guess that's the theory of comedy. 
I, I'm again, I'm not an expert, but I definitely did that with the book. You know, I would sit and think, what's the most humiliating thing that ever happened to me? How can I make it a funny story? Like my first kiss is in Less It's Lost. <laughs> I didn't have the nerve to put it into Less because it's so humiliating. And I thought, I got to put it in. And I, I'm happy to tell people that is exactly what happened. But what's interesting in the book is it means something different to him than it did to me. Right. You know, like, right. even though the story is the same, it's a different punchline. And also in a book, you kind of think things are going to turn out okay. So it's okay to laugh at it. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're 18, you don't know things are going to turn out okay. So it doesn't seem funny the next day. I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago where you said, you know, you look at the thing that scares you when you sit down to start a novel. And I'm trying to figure out, having read Less is Lost, I'm trying to figure out what that thing was that scared you. And I don't know if it was just switching gears from the book that was not working while you were driving around, or if it was just something, again, with Arthur and Freddie. Well, it was definitely what happens after the happy ending. How do you get through trapped in an apartment with a loved one for two and a half years? But when I originally started it, what scared me was definitely Alabama. Right. Okay. You know, like, I'm like, I don't know that area and I'm scared of it for some reason. And that's ridiculous. You know, it's, it's just, it's clearly a prejudice of mine. I have to go there and be not scared. Once again, there's a scene in a bar in Alabama that is just a transcription of my, my time in that bar. <laughs> I I added the dog, but everything else, what he puts on the jukebox is exactly what I, what happened. Just because it was funny, if I thought back on it, it wasn't fu- it wasn't funny when it was happening. You know, like they were leading normal lives. I'm the weirdo who shows up, and uh, what goes wrong is me. <laughs> okay, so you leave before eight p.m., but also you are a writer. You're the outsider. You're always the outsider. I mean, I look at. Your novels, Greta Wells and Max Tivoli, and I'm shortening the titles because I have a terrible habit of doing that. Um, But The Confessions of Max Tivoli was, what, 2004, and The Impossible Lives of Greta Wells, I'm sorry, 2012? 12. Okay, sorry. But so, I mean, eight years between these two novels that are wildly inventive, right? We've got time travel in Greta Wells, and we've got Max aging backwards in a very different way from <laughs> Benjamin Button, which some people might say, oh, I remember. No, it's totally different. It's different. <laughs> but I do like I like this idea that you sort of bounce around and story of a marriage is certainly, you know, unlike any of the other books. And here you are now writing comic novels and having people say, oh, right. Why haven't you been doing this all along? I mean, it's very nice to yeah. have a Pulitzer. But I want to talk about you as a writer and the evolution of ideas for you and sort of, you know, your first story collection, fantastic debut story collection, exactly what you sort of expect from a guy coming out of an MFA program. And yeah. then we get The Light of Minor Planets. Yeah. Which unfortunately pubbed right around 9-11. It did. And so, but Max Tivoli in, in 04 had a lot of people talking for a really long time and lots of good things happened for that book. And it was wild. And I just remember thinking, oh, who is this guy? I remember picking it up because people I knew who don't usually read sort of fantasy and whatnot were saying, oh, no, no, this Max Tivoli guy, like, you need to read this book. And I remember finishing it and thinking, oh, I just read an epic love story. I, wait, I, (laughs) 
So I want to talk about Max for a second because it's been a minute since that. It has been a minute. I mean, (laughs) we're talking in 2022, but. I mean, yeah, it was a while ago. I, 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 but I, I feel I have a great fondness for that book and it feels like less to me because, um, before both of those, both of those books, I had thought my career's over. I have nothing. No one's reading my books. No one's, no one's ever going to read the next one I write. So it gave me total freedom to do what I wanted, oddly. And like Max Tivoli, I was like, I, no one is asking me to write like a sort of fantasy novel about a man who ages backwards in 19th century San Francisco in Victorian prose. Like that was not cool in 2004. Definitely not cool. And I was like, well, I guess I'm not cool. I'll just, I'll do that. Um, and I got rewarded for it. And then Les was the same thing that I, I think it shows in the book that <laughs> Les is a, is a sort of failed novelist. And so again, I put in really personal details because I thought no one's ever going to read this. And once again, <laughs> like it was <laughs> with people actually reading it. And I guess, so I guess the, the, the key for me is to, is to fail intermittently or at least to give myself total permission to, to, to do exactly what I mm-hmm. want, which it seems like every novelist does, but, but we don't, we're aware of the, the market and we're told about it and how our book isn't going to fit it. And, and you're certainly aware of all the books that come out that we're not supposed to do well and then do, and the ones that are supposed to be mega hits and nothing happens and it's no one can predict it. Uh, and so I had both of those were really pleasant experiences in making them and and then and and they're being received you know you've also had people though say to you you write wildly different books and yet you're sitting around saying well no actually i kind of write about love and i kind of write about the passage of time which i love i love the idea that you're just kind of like no 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 really i have these two obsessions i just dress them up differently that's it for me i think i write the same book over and over i just i don't want you to notice (laughs) (laughs) Or rather, I want it to still work on you, you know, like, or on me. Like, I want to try it from a different angle, but I keep um, definitely getting the same thing. Like, even less, which is told in present tense. Right, um, right. So it can't be about the passage of time, right? But but it definitely is, because it's about aging, and it's about his youth, and it's about love. So I think I define passage of time slightly differently then, because as far as I'm concerned, the novel is the best way to talk about any kind of passage of time. Whether like there's just no other art form that really does it because you can bounce forward, you can bounce back. I like it when time travel has guardrails, though. And I mean, certainly with Greta Wells, when, you know, she's in 85, then the other Gretas are in their respective other years, too. And that seems like a lot of math to do as a writer. And it's Oh, my God, it's so complicated. (laughs) (laughs) I have this huge chart. Right. All the lines going and like the index cards that I just could not get it straight but part of also why i bring up greta beyond the fact that it's just fun to talk about this book and the idea of (laughs) andrew sean greer writing a time travel novel is greta's brother and you mentioned this too a little bit in less there's an entire generation of men who are missing because of the aids crisis and never got a chance to turn 50 and greta's brother obviously factors into her story as well. And I think it's really important to talk about this. Also, you know, in the context of a comic novel, you're not making light of any of this, but you also can't ignore the fact that it happened. And and certainly at Robert's funeral, 
there are some moments where I got, you know, my eyes got really big because I remember that moment too. And, and so to see the memorialization of this and yeah, it's kind of funny that Les doesn't know how to grow old, but there's a reason. It's not just vanity. There's a real reason. I think every writer deals with this, that there is some big story from their community or their family mm-hmm. or their world they come from that has been told before, but needs to keep being told. And so you have to tell it in some new way, mm-hmm. which is, mm-hmm. which is hard. Um, and certainly the, the, the story of the AIDS pandemic has had a, amazing representations in angels of America and the band played on and, and normal heart and things. And I, I have had a struggle trying to um, talk about it in a way that didn't fall into cop, uh, some cliche or or something already heard. I needed the reader to experience it again. So especially younger readers who don't didn't live through it and aren't really they're aware of it, but it's so long ago. So like in like in in Greta Wells, I really um, I thought, well, this is a way I can show you know, a man dying in 1985. I don't want to set a novel all about that, but um, I can show that. And then I can do it in a in a way of hope. I'm showing a different possibility in a different time period. So there's a sense of what's the best time to live. This, this goes up, that goes down. And unless it's lost, I have, I specifically set Robert's memorial in the columbarium here in San Francisco, which is this peculiar place where it's glass um, niches um, for urns and you can decorate the inside any way you want. And because um, the cemeteries in San Francisco wouldn't accept the bodies of of, of eight um, deaths, the columbarium would. So it's filled in like 1992, 93, 94 with all of these hilarious ones that are like all decorated Judy Garland with lots beads and flowers and it's you you understand the time period you understand the of course the joy that's coming is from their friends who are making it for them and the real tragedy of seeing so many all at once it's just walls of it um and and it's there unless it's lost just as a kind of just like this is this is the history he's coming from and not pretending that everything's Things are much better now for 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 gay men, especially. But um, it comes up, you know. It's still in my mind. Yeah, and we shouldn't pretend it didn't happen. I mean, that's there are some yeah. folks who are kind of like, well, you know, we have all of the drugs now and everything, and it's like, yeah, but we can't forget that this happened. And that's, I think, it's important for us to be able to give a modern context to something that feels very, very long ago for some people. I got to ask you about something that first comes up in Less, and it comes up again in Less is Lost, but this idea of Arthur as a bad gay. Can we talk uh, about this for a second? <laughs> I mean, I feel a little guilty laughing about it, but at the same time, I sort of see both sides where I'm like, well, I mean, he's just Arthur. Yeah, he is. <laughs> but he's got this other writer saying to him, no, Arthur, you're just a bad gay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't find this funny, but it is. I thought, I just thought it was... It was funny because it's weird to be a writer when you have a kind of responsibility to your people, whoever those are, and you can uh, and to tell their story and you can tell it the way everyone wants you to tell it or you can tell it your way. And if you tell it your way, it's not going to be popular. And uh, I thought 
I thought it would be funny for someone to um, confront Arthur with something that had never, doesn't even make sense, you know? <laughs> it's just too, too, uh, like, down the line, like, you have to do it this way. Um, and that would confuse him. But it's also the guy's right. Like, Arthur isn't taking a lot of things into account. He isn't, in his books, he's, you know, killing off the character. Yeah, I'm just thinking back to, like, I mean, there was a moment where it was basically David Levitt and then Alan Hollinghurst came along and Ed White was always, uh, Edmund White was always sort of in the background of everyone. And you studied with Ed at Brown as an undergrad. You also studied yeah. with Robert Coover. And that's a pairing I find wildly fascinating. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, the readers probably don't know either of these writers so much, but but Edmund White is was uh, wrote the first big sort of coming out coming of age novel a boys on story and maybe it was 1980 mm -hmm. um and that's still sort of being imitated today oh, it's, completely, the, it's yeah. the the classic and um and has continued to write books and has a new one coming out <laughs> and then robert cooper was a highly experimental uh uh writer who would like write he had one short story that was a deck of cards and you would just shuffle the cards any way you want. And we, our class was on, on we, we, we use computers. They had just invented hypertext where you click on a word and it connects to another document. You might've done that in your life. This is the first time anyone ever did that. He's like, let's try to write stories that way. It's a mess. I remember actually. <laughs> really? The hypertext novel? Everyone was talking about it. it was just this moment in in books where people were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, this is the future." And I'm like, "Like books on CD-ROM?" Like, I mean, I just as a baby bookseller, people were trying to, say, "Oh no, you'll just have an encyclopedia on a CD." I was like, mm, "Okay." Part of why I love the idea of you studying with these two very very different writers is ultimately you find your own voice, and you end up in Montana with a studying under a dude that I just think the world of William Kitteridge who's done this memoir called A Hole in the Sky. And, you know, it's this great story of the West, but also his family and his, wow, his family. Yeah. But I want to ask what you learned from each of them. If you remember, I mean, obviously I'm asking you about something from a really long time ago, but these are three sort of formidable guys. Really different guys, first mm -hmm. of all. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, very. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, Robert Cooper was like always wore a black leather vest and aviator sunglasses and seemed very serious, but he was very playful and incredibly supportive. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I just think from him, I learned like do whatever you want, like write. There's no one way to write. In fact, you, you, all of us are getting stuck in in this particular writing mode, and we have to break out of it. Which I still think about, you know, and I still tell my students like don't write your dialogue like a TV show, like, or, you know, like think of other ways to go, read more books. Mm -hmm. uh, and Edmund White, uh, he taught me a lot of stylistic stuff about writing. That was really useful because he's just a genius. He's read everything. He has strong gospel opinions about every writer. It's true. <laughs> um, it's really true. Certain, yeah. I mean, he's a hoot. I mean, that also was a joy of reading that I got from him, but he was very specific in stylistic choices. Like he specifically told me I was describing something difficult with a, like a metaphor about something really ugly. And he said, Oh no, 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 you do the opposite. So if a soldier's leg is being covered in gangrene, you say it's like a column with Ivy on it. So you, you surprise the reader and it makes it less sentimental by, by reversing 
interesting the metaphor something i've done ever since you know something like i, I hadn't occurred to me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then william kittredge um who died during the mm-hmm. pandemic um yeah. but who was a, a rancher mm-hmm. through and through but was not really born to be a rancher he was like a sort of tender-hearted soul gun-toting tender-hearted soul and he sure did not know what to make of me when I showed up but then I finally wrote a short story that was a straightforward uh, story about like a gay man and a lesbian who get married in the 60s it's cover for each other and their 30-year marriage and he called me to his office and he told me some long sports metaphor about a pitcher who always pitched with his left hand I didn't understand but I understood what he was saying was, you're good at this and you should do this. It's so tempting to try to be impressive and cool and copy what's going on in the world, but you should do, you have to recognize what you're good at and 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 do it. And it was really uh, great advice. And he, he, he was consistently supportive and it was great to see him through the years when I would go back to Montana. An unlikely, you know, uh, mentor, he also sent my first short story to be published to his friend Richard Ford, who was publishing Plowshares. And he sent that story. It was the first story I ever published. You know, he was, he was really supportive. Okay. I did not know that Richard Ford published your first story at Plowshares, but that makes me very happy to hear. <laughs> he did. I came home to my little apartment in Missoula, Montana. I had an answering machine and it was blinking and I pushed it. And you hear, hello, this is Richard Ford. I hope I reached Andrew Greer. You know, and when you are 24, that is an amazing message. Here. I want to go back to Arthur Les for a second because his backstory. We meet his sister Rebecca in the new novel, and I wasn't sure we were ever going to meet. And we also get dad, and we get a little yeah. more of mom. I mean, this felt like a really great moment to meet all of these people. But so you're going in, you've started this novel that morphs into Les's loss, and you don't really like the characters, and it's not really working, and all that. But suddenly, here's Arthur. And now we get to meet the rest of the Les family. <laughs> and dad's a scoundrel. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but I knew that from the first book. Okay. But my first draft didn't have dad in it at all. And, and it had a sort of different ending. And I was like, dad, it's, this book is about dad. Mandarin made it clear to me. I was like, this is about father figures. This is about growing old and responsibility and forgiveness. And uh, his sister showed up. Mm-hmm. I don't know how. It was one of those things where I just decided, oh, maybe as a sister. Mm, okay. <laughs> She's not mentioned in the first book. And uh, she was so fun to write that I just put her in the whole book. You know, I and, and you actually meet her in person eventually. I just thought she was another good foil because she and a great friend to him, you know, but I just thought she'd be funny. You know, you've talked about how you read quite a lot of Philip Roth while you were writing the original Les. And I'm yeah. wondering what some of the influences are here, because, I mean, there is a shift in tone a little bit. You go from found family to actual genetic family, and, you know, we're, you're, well, it's not quite that frog in the boiling water thing, but Les is learning a lot about himself in this book. <laughs> yeah, it's a, di- I mean, it's a, a different lot. book. Yeah, I mean, I, that's why sequels is, yeah. is, is a tricky word, yep. because it it feels like a different book when I was writing it. And yeah, I think that the influences were different. Um, I was, but they'll sound weird to you. You know, it was um, Travels with My Aunt by Graham Greene. Um, not not a deep book, but a 
I think a masterpiece. I read a lot of American literature as a, you know, I re okay. I read Moby Dick and I reread Nathaniel Hawthorne and I tried to read James Fenimore Cooper, which is as unreadable as it was when I was 15. Oh, that is yeah, not good. Can't, mm, can't do it. Can't do them. Can't. That's, I mean, all of us went through piles of books in this pandemic. And I was in Italy, so I was getting whatever my mm -hmm. friend Daniel was was mailing me. Right. So it was a lot of uh, kooky stuff. I know we've talked about your teachers. I know we've talked about the influences on less and less is lost. But do you sort of have a list of go-to writers that you turn to, not based on a project, but just based on your own personal taste? Well, I'm really, I have very, because um, I, I sort of, came up buying from used bookstores mm -hmm. i'm not yeah. often that aware of the contemporary fiction list which i think you hear from writers a lot they're a little afraid of the influence of, of the right now um so i'm very comfortable going into a dusty old bookstore and picking something i've never heard of mm -hmm. um or something i've never heard of by a writer i know lillian hellman has a novel called maybe that i pick up all the time and you've <laughs> okay. never heard of it i have not <laughs> for have sure not. I'm always trying to tipsly write to the New York Review of Books and saying, hey, would you guys republish maybe? And they were sort of like, thank you for your note, dear sir, <laughs> on Instagram. Never do it. Pretentiously, I pick up Proust a lot. Now at random, just mm -hmm. to, I, I love it. I don't, I no longer have to read 4,000 pages of it. I can just read what I like of it, you know? Right, 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 right. But I really like books in translation mm -hmm. because they teach me something about uh, the English language, because they're a little not standard. Okay. And uh, I, that, I find that really um, fresh and exciting. You know, like in like you read a, 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 a Magray novel and the dialogue is all like dash. And then they say instead of quotation marks. Yep. I'm like, oh, I guess you could do that. Yeah. You know, like I, it just, something else occurs to you. And I love that. And I make notes on it. I also read a lot of Cormac McCarthy when I was younger, and I'm like, I'm okay with no punctuation. Oh, yeah, I'm, there's like, no punctuation in those. I, yeah. I, I actually don't need that as markers. I just need to be able to sit, you know, with the words and and the intent of the thing. Or Jose Saramago, he won't even yeah, yeah. separate the dialogue. It's all yeah, in yeah. the paragraph, <laughs> which is interesting. I'm like, you know, if if I'm game. I mean, that's really what it comes down to, and Certainly your career makes me think of how game I am to sit with someone and let them tell me a story. Because again, like time travel is not necessarily the first thing I re reach for, but I'm like, oh, that Greer guy, I like the way he tells a story. Sure, I'll read this. Max, same thing. All of that where I'm just like, huh, okay, I trust you. That's good to hear. Yeah, no, no. It's it's story of a marriage. I Before we started taping, obviously I mentioned it and I'm trying to figure out how to shoehorn it in here but i might not Just be able shoehorn to shoehorn it in okay but it's such a different book from everything else and you know i missed pearly i and i it had been a minute since i'd read the book i originally read it when it first came out and it's a very sort of quiet sad i mean there are reviewers who've compared it to um marilyn robinson or like a story by william trevor and i'm just like yeah actually those are really accurate comps and it's been a minute since you've done anything like that. But I also remember sort of thinking, huh, okay, here we are. We're going to sit with the idea that nostalgia isn't quite the thing you think it is. And it feels, 
because of that, a very timely kind of book where I'm like, nostalgia is not what you think it is, folks. <laughs> it really isn't. <laughs> it's not all that. And I would really love to see people pick up the story of a marriage again, because it's, it's, I mean, 08? It came out between 08. Greta and Tivoli, yeah, right? It, okay. it was 08, yeah. I, I would like them to pick it up, too. I'm interested. Oddly, in Italy, that is the book that everyone has read. It's like a classic in Italy. Because I think it reveals something unnerving about America yeah. that they they feel like is is true, yep. and that I think a lot of American readers might find unnerving. Also, the paperback jacket is really spectacular. It's really oh, good. Yeah. I just saw the new oh. jacket, and I was like, "Oh, wait a minute! When did they do this? Is great. This is." Fantastic. They went through a couple different things before they did that, and then they just went back and printed them all. Yeah, I'd love if people picked up Story of the Marriage. You would not crack a smile in that book. No, 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 it's, it's absolutely not that. But, you know, for all of the folks who like the big feels, right, I think about all these people who like to cry on video. I'm just like, no, really, I have the book for you. <laughs> really oh, yeah, cry on video. I mean, there are folks, I, not me, but I mean, there are folks who can really do it. But here's a question. What's next for you? I've done this enough times that I know. I must be starting on a new book before okay. a book comes out because you can't have your heart all in that place. Um, you've got to be somewhere else. So I started a new book this, uh, this summer and I haven't reached the nervous breakdown point yet. And it's going to it'll happen. <laughs> I, <was gonna> ask. <laughs> I prefer to front load the nervous breakdown like with less, but okay. well, you know, it's going to happen when it happens. Italy is, is, is in part of it now because I am so aware of that, that country these days. That's really excellent. I've heard one thing, and I'm just wondering if this is true or if it's sort of become apocryphal, but you've had moments where editors or your agent have come to you and said, Andrew, I don't think this is working. You need to fix this. And your response has been to rewrite something to make sure that the thing fits instead of taking it out, which many writers would just take the thing out. But is that true? And did you have to do that with less is loss? Or did that sort of once you figured out where you needed to go, you were fine? And and that's where you went. Nope, that happened with less is lost, for sure. <laughs> less, story of a marriage. Mm -hmm. I think most books and but you know, I tell this to my students, too. I say, like, if you bring in a story about a marriage that's vaguely falling apart, and at the end, the husband finds a mermaid in the backyard, everyone in class will say, cut out the mermaid, and it'll be great but you'll have a mediocre story about a marriage falling apart. The mermaid's the interesting part. You need to rewrite the whole story so that the mermaid appearing feels fulfilling. So scrap everything else. And it's really hard advice to give to someone when you know the mermaid isn't working. So like less, the ending, the narrator, I was advised by many people to cut that because they said, we've had a good time throughout this whole book. Why risk it? And I said, oh, I have to redo the whole book. I get it. But it took me a long time to understand that that, that advice um, is telling me where it hurts, but they, they can't diagnose or shouldn't try to diagnose the problem. That it's really, unfortunately, it's up to the writer to figure it out. And that happened in Less is Lost also um, with the ending. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm glad you kept that ending. Both of the endings I, are terrific. Yeah. So terrific. I was like, I, I got it. I got it. I hear you. It's um, everything else has to change. 
And it usually, it, what it usually has to do with is you have to make an, an emotional through line, go deeper within yourself, make it emotionally fulfilling. If it's emotionally fulfilling, then the fact that it's not probable is not important. <laughs> yeah. I really just want to hear a great story. And that yeah. I, can always, I can always rely on you for a great story. I may not know where I'm going. <laughs> I may no, you not sure know. Don't. But I know I'm Don't read the copy, jacket copy on the next book because then you'll just be like, where? Who knows where we'll go? Outer <laughs> no, it's okay. I just need to see your name on the jacket. We'll be fine. I, it'll Good. be totally, totally fine. Andrew Sean Greer, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Less is Lost is out now, along with all of Andrew's backlist, and you really should go check it out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, readers. It's time for another TBR Top Off, where we recommend books to pick up when you stop in for your copy of Less is Lost. I'm Mark. And I'm Becky. And we're coming to you from our Barnes & Noble store in Cincinnati, Ohio. We've got a couple of great books to discuss. So, Becky, if you don't mind, I'll jump right in. Go right ahead. Thank you very much. So, I thought about the character Less. Uh, I loved uh, Less. Uh, so, I'm very excited for this sequel. And I thought about Less as a man in his um, middle age to twilight years. Um, and it made me think of a book that maybe isn't as playful, uh, but is certainly potent. And that is A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood. Um, this is a slim but beautiful novel about the two selves that we have inside of us, the one who speaks for us and the one who speaks to us very honestly, only in our heads. Um, sometimes those two selves swap places. Sometimes they're saying the same thing. And sometimes we listen and sometimes we don't. Um, this book follows uh, middle-aged George, who is reeling from the loss of his lover. And he is carrying on very slowly um, and with great effort, um, but he is not doing very well. Uh, the book is filled with um, memory and getting through tough times. Um, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous novel. It's sometimes crushing, uh, sometimes hopeful, uh, but always, always very well written. And sometimes we can't have the things that we want. So we have to listen to both of those selves in order to get a glimmer of hope. And this book provides an avenue to explore that. So please check out A Single Man by Christopher Isherwood. Becky, do you have one for us? I do. Um, mine is uh, probably a little bit more playful, I think, than yours. Yay! Uh, <laughs> um, but it is Bucky Effing Dent by David Duchovny. Oh, nice. Um, so some of you may only know David Duchovny as an actor, uh, possibly as Fox Mulder from The X-Files. Um, that is certainly where I met him first and, um, and definitely fell in love. But he is an accomplished writer as well and has a good handful of books under his name. This one is his second book, and if you are a baseball fan, you will definitely enjoy it. Um, you may already have an idea <laughs> what the book is about, um, but this uh, follows Ted. He's kind of living a directionless life. He's, he's trying to write the great American, the next great American novel, and uh, it's not going maybe the best. <laughs> but when he finds out that his estranged father, Marty, is um, dying of lung cancer, he decides to just drop everything. Um, not really dropping all that much, but he moves back home uh, just to take advantage of the time that he has left with his dad. And Marty is eager to do the same. He, um, he was an absentee father when Ted was little, and he really just wants to take advantage of the time that they have left to 
rediscover each other and and hopefully heal that broken relationship. So they start and uh, things are going well. Marty is a big Red Sox fan. And so they spend some of their time going to games, watching games. But Ted notices that Marty's health takes a dip every time the Red Sox lose. And wanting to prolong the time that he has with his father uh, as much as he can, he hatches a plan with uh, the help of some neighbors and and neighborhood people uh, and possibly a new love interest to maybe have the Red Sox start a winning streak. And so, yeah, so that's what happens. And maybe that has an effect on actual real life events where uh, if you are familiar with baseball history in 78, the Red Sox did kind of catch on fire for a bit. And uh, they got to the, I think it was the American League East finals, trying to get up to the uh, World Series where they met the New York Yankees and Bucky Effing Dent. But it's such a fun, this is just a really fun book. You will definitely laugh out loud. You may tear up a little bit. But it's just a beautiful story about not wanting to come to terms with death, but also just taking the time that you do have with people to get past old resentments and and disagreements and really just um, end things on a good note. So Bucky Effing Dent by David Duchovny. Definitely pick it up. <laughs> oh, fantastic. I also love that similar to Les from Les. Yes. Um, he is kind of sinking in the work that he should be doing mm -hmm. and then circumstances pop up that he says, Oh, this is the thing that I yeah, need to do let's instead. Just go here. Let's shirk those responsibilities <laughs> and go on an adventure. Absolutely. I love it. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. Well, that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning into Port Over. Please make sure to support us with a rating and subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can also follow us at Barnes & Noble. Mm -hmm. My name is Mark. I'm Becky. And you can follow our home store at BN Westchester. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy reading. Bye. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.